We're going to be in a, a new section, sort of, in the in uh, the the message that Jesus is giving in in Matthew chapter ten. It's a message on missions. On he's sending out his disciples. He's sending out the twelve to go and minister to the people, and he's speaking to them about their ministry then and their ministry that's going forward in the in the years to come after his resurrection. And then he's also speaking to us about the ministry that we're going to be on and that we're going to do in the world until he returns. And what he told us last week as we've been studying this passage is that we as Christians are going to face persecution. The disciples of him are going to be persecuted. And one of the scariest things about being a Christian, I think, is the thought of facing persecution, of one day being persecuted. Over the last 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth, millions of Christians have been killed for their faith and for their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the verse right after that says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I remember a time in my Christian life when I began to learn about Reformed theology and about the depravity of man especially. And I was amazed at the time about what the Bible teaches about the sinfulness of mankind in the world. We are born as enemies to God. We are hostile towards Him. We are contrary to His ways. Our hearts are hardened. We're unable to submit to His laws, unwilling to forsake our sin and come to Christ. And along with that clearer understanding of man came the realization that that, that means, therefore, I will be persecuted. Persecution will come. We live in a wicked world. And I saw that living for Christ in a world like this would mean suffering with Christ in the world. Again, Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so there's no escape from suffering in a world of evil men and imposters. Now, as I said last time, we looked at Matthew 10, verses 16 to 23. And in that text, Jesus told his disciples, and through them, he tells us that they would and we will be persecuted. He was sending them out in verse 16 as sheep in the midst of wolves. Men would deliver them over to courts, flog them in the synagogues, verse 17. They would be dragged before governors and kings for his sake, verse 18. Verse 21 says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. All people, Jesus said, would hate his disciples. Even members of one's own family would rise up and deliver their parents or their children or their brothers, over to death. Now, as I've said, the chapter 10 is really written for us as well. It records what Jesus said to his disciples on their first mission trip. 
But it also looks beyond the, the mission, that initial mission to Galilee, to the, their ongoing ministry after his resurrection. And Matthew includes chapter 10 for us and for our mission as well. We too will face persecution, hatred, suffering, if we're faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, if we want to live godly in Christ Jesus in this world. Now, thinking about persecution is a scary thought. And I remember a a time in my life when I was sensing the call to ministry and I was starting to think that maybe the Lord would would have me be in ministry and that I should enter training and, and learn how to be a pastor and an elder in a church. And I remember thinking as I was kind of feeling this call and, and, and evaluating this call, I remember thinking that I'm going to face persecution. If I go into this ministry, I'm going to face persecution. And, and when, when that persecution comes, the, it's likely, Mike, I was telling myself, it's likely that they're going to come after the pastor first of all. And I had to work through that at the time, but unfortunately, even as I was thinking about it, I have no idea what actually helped me at that time to kind of get through those fears. Um, but Jesus here doesn't say that this is for pastors and for career missionaries. This persecution that he promised us is for all disciples. And all of us need to analyze our lives and our commitment to Jesus Christ. And that's what I, I hope that today's message does for us, that we analyze our lives and think about our commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus demands a wholehearted commitment to himself and to his mission, even unto persecution. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to follow him even in his sufferings. We must be those who, in verse 22, endure to the end. And so the question is then for us, well, how are we going to overcome the fear of persecution? How are we going to overcome the fear of persecution? You know, years ago, I I heard about some Chinese um, Christians And there's really no way to verify these stories about Chinese Christians in a far off country or whatever. But I I heard a story from, I I think it was from one of those like uh, the voice of the martyrs or or, um, there's another ministry that Andrew, um, brother Andrew was part of. Maybe some of you know who that is, what that is. But anyways, I think it might have been through through their thing. And and they, they told of these Christians in China who had classes for their missionaries. There was these classes where they would teach them how to endure persecution. And they would, they would apparently beat one another with sticks to kind of prepare one another for the oncoming persecution that they would face as they went out as missionaries. And I, I remember thinking at the time, wow, that was really cool. Like what a bunch of committed, awesome Christian, um, missionary dudes. But anyways, um, I, I since learned, you know, it's kind of exciting and us Western people kind of get into that kind of thing. But um, I've since learned years, years and years later, thankfully, that actually the word of God prepares us better than anything else that there could be. We don't necessarily need classes to get beat with a stick to learn how to endure persecution. What we need is to have our minds renewed by the Word of God. And just to kind of see that initially, I want you to turn to 2 
Timothy. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I've already mentioned the verse there in, in verses 12 and 13, even a couple times, but let's go and look at the whole context there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and somehow I just cannot get to 2 Timothy this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and in the context here, of really of this whole letter, Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue in the ministry. And to continue with boldness, because it seems that Timothy was somehow discouraged, somehow negatively affected by, by Paul, his mentor, being imprisoned. And so Paul is now in prison, and somehow that, the, the, the fact of Paul's imprisonment has, has caused Timothy to be ashamed, to be, uh, maybe less bold than he was. And so in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6, for example, Paul says, uh, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a, a spirit, not a fear, which maybe has started to overtake Timothy a little bit at this time. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Then in verse 11, Paul says that he was appointed a, a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the gospel. Verse 12 says, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says, I, I suffer for the gospel, but I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I, I believe in the Lord and he will guard me until judgment day. In chapter two and verse one, Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. And then he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now there's really, we could really kind of just go through this whole letter. And I could, there, there's really so much parallel between 2 Timothy and, and the section that, that we're going to start looking at now. But just, just go to chapter 3 here. And we'll see it again. So Paul's encouraging him, don't be ashamed, be bold, speak the, the truth um, be, be faithful to minister. And then chapter 3, verse 10, he, he reminds Timothy again. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings which, that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so Paul has followed Jesus, and now he encourages Timothy to follow him, to follow him as he follows Christ. And notice in this context, he says, follow my steadfastness at the end of verse 10, my persecutions at the beginning of verse 11. And to do that, Paul points Timothy to Scripture. You know, we often look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture has been breathed out by God and all Scripture is profitable that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And these verses do apply really to every good work, but in the context, the good work here that Paul is calling Timothy to is suffering persecution because Timothy is living godly in Christ Jesus and not ashamed of the gospel. And so it's the scripture, Paul says, that's going to enable you to, to do that good work of being faithful and following me even into suffering and imprisonment. The word of God is sufficient to equip us to suffer for Jesus' sake. And perhaps the best passage for this is our text in Matthew chapter 10. And so I'd invite you to kind of go back then with me to Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to start at verse 24. Again, Jesus has told us that, that we would suffer. And now he tells us not to fear it. And he doesn't just say, do not fear. He actually gives us reasons not to fear. Now let's read our text and and allow the word of God to equip us to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or to be afraid of suffering for the gospel. And so Matthew 10, 24 to 33, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Belzebul or Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, three times in this section that we're looking at, Jesus says something to the effect of do not fear. Again, in verse 26, it says, so have no fear of them. And verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body. And then again, verse 31, fear not, therefore. And these three commands to not fear, they separate the text into five reasons 
not to fear. And so there's kind of three, three do not fears that break up these five sections, these five reasons not to fear. And we're going to see then five reasons not to be afraid of persecution. And so Jesus has told us it's going to come. Now he says, don't fear. And so there's going to be five reasons not to fear persecution. But as I was working on this message and starting the first reason not to fear, I started thinking, this is, this is longer. I, I have a lot more to say about verse 24 than I maybe thought. And then I started working a little bit more on it. And then I realized, okay, maybe this will be a two-point sermon. And then it all of a sudden was like, if I start the second point, it's going to be too long. So we're just going to go really slow here. And I'm just going to give you the first reason today. We're just going to look at the first reason not to fear persecution. But over the next few weeks, and, I, and you know, I never know what, what's going to happen. But over the next few weeks, we're going to look at all five reasons. And the first reason... Not to fear is number one, do not fear persecution because you are becoming like your teacher and master. And we see that in verses really 24 and 20, sorry, 24 and 25, but then also just into verse 26 where it says, so have no fear of them. So do not fear persecution because you are becoming like your teacher and master. Look at the text again. It says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. Now I want to begin just by pointing out the logic of this section. And we've got here in, in the verses that I just read, we've got three relationships highlighted. There's a, a disciple-teacher relationship. There's a servant-master relationship, which is literally a slave-lord or a slave-and-master. Doulos, kurios, we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then we see uh, a master of the house and a member of of the household. And so there's three relationships that are highlighted. And through these three relational pictures, Jesus reminds us of our place in his work. Jesus is the teacher and he is the Lord. He is the master of the house. We are members of the house. We are learners and we are slaves. And our goal as learners and slaves is to become like him. And if we become like him, the argument kind of goes, then we will be treated like him. But also with that, if we become like him, we will handle that persecution and that treatment like he did. And when you think about it, you could ask, was Jesus fearful? Or was he even at all fearful of what the Jews or what Pilate or what Herod would do to him? And obviously the answer is no. You look at him going through the gospel and and he's not afraid of those men. Now there's a moment where he's afraid to to bear the wrath of God on our behalf, but there's he never seems to be afraid of the Jews or Pilate or whatever, and he endured the persecution looking to the joy that was set before him. And so it will be enough for us as well to be like our teacher. 
And verse 26 then concludes the argument Jesus is making, so have no fear of them. And that word so there in the ESV is literally therefore. And most of the other English translations, they translate it with the stronger therefore. And the ESV, for whatever reasons, kind of softens it to so. I think maybe they weren't seeing the connection and the argument that Jesus is making here, but it's really therefore, because of what I just told you in verses 24 and 25, have no fear of them. And so there's this connection And it goes like this, because you are becoming like your teacher and because you are becoming like your Lord, you will be treated like he was, but also because you are becoming like him, you are becoming like him in how he handled adversity and in how he handled persecution. And therefore, because you are like him, do not fear them. So you can kind of see the argument that's happening there, the argument Jesus is making. I hope that you see it, and, and really it's, it's such an encouragement, it's been such a blessing to meditate on this week that, that becoming like Christ in every area of our lives, including how he handled persecution. And that's the overall logic then in these verses. And so again, do not fear persecution, this is our heading, do not fear persecution because you are becoming like your teacher and your master. And I'll just give you the other ones here for, for next week. In verses 26 and 27, the second reason not to fear persecution is because in the end, ultimately, everything will be revealed. And then thirdly, we're going to see that do not fear persecution because the persecutors, they can't ultimately hurt you. They, they can only hurt your body, not your soul. Number four, we're going to see in verses 29 to 31 that, that we should not fear persecution because God is sovereign and because he cares for us. He cares for the sparrows. How much more will he care for us? He even has numbered the hairs of our head. And then fifthly, we'll see that we shouldn't fear persecution because if we acknowledge Christ now in this world, he will acknowledge us before the Father on the judgment day. And so there's going to be this great reversal in the end. But number one right now, we're just going to look at today not to fear persecution because we're becoming like our teacher and our master. And I I really just want to encourage you and challenge you in your walk with Christ this morning. I I, I want this to be a, a, a challenge and I want you to think about your life and think, am I learning from Christ? Am I obeying him? Am I living my life in light of these relationships? Is he the teacher or do I, am I the teacher? Is he the master and Lord or am I the master and Lord of my life? And is he the, the master of the house or do I sometimes want to take control? And so it's a, a challenge for us. And I just really want to speak to you to just really think about how you're living your life. We are disciples of Jesus Christ and he is our teacher. We are learners. And as I've said before, the disciples in the ancient Near East would, would join themselves to a teacher. And they would join themselves to a teacher in, in formal settings and informal settings, and they would learn everything that the teacher taught them. And they would follow the teacher's lifestyle. They would kind of emulate and take on everything about his life. And the disciple would learn to be like the teacher, and they would learn to think in the way that the teacher thought. 
And so they would learn the teacher's beliefs. They would learn his belief system and, and everything that he taught them. And then they would learn to act like the teacher. And they would learn to practice what the preacher did. They, they, would, they would learn how to do what the teacher did in their lives. And so the disciple-teacher relationship was kind of like an apprenticeship program. You know, you think about a mechanic or, you know, I have a, a, I did an apprenticeship as a security alarm technician or an electrician or uh, think kind of along the lines of the trades. And, and you would, you learn what the master craftsman does. You, you learn how he does it. You learn the, 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 the practices. You learn the thinking. But this wasn't just at work, this was kind of for the whole life. You know, if I'm learning plumbing from a plumber, I, I don't take on the characteristics of the plumber and try to act like him when he goes home after work or whatever. But this, this kind of discipleship was a, a whole of life discipleship. We are learning to be like the master in our thinking and in our actions, in our beliefs and in our practice. And this discipleship paradigm is, is really how I want you to think and how the scripture wants you to think about Christianity. We are learning from the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and we're learning to become like Him in every way. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are learning to be like Jesus Christ in every aspect of your life. We want to learn his beliefs. We want to learn how to think like him. And we want to learn his practice. We want to learn how to act like him in this world. And so as we kind of think about the first one, are you learning Christ? Is your mind being renewed day by day in the word of God? Are you spending time in the Word and with Christ in His Word so that you are recognizing who He is and how He thinks about everything that goes on in the world? You know, I've had kind of the the privilege of having two discipleship kind of relationships in in the earthly sense in this world. One was was with Mike Riccardi at Grace Community Church and the other one was with James Coates at Grace Life Church. And in both cases, over time, I learned how those men thought. And I, and, and I would learn what they would say or what they would do in certain situations. Or when certain topics came up, I could just, I, I, and, and even to this day, when certain topics come up, I can almost hear Mike Riccardi and how he would argue that argument um, because he was just a, a brilliant, a brilliant guy. And, and so I could, I can almost, anticipate what he would say at any given moment. And, and really the same with, with uh, Pastor James at Grace Life. Very often I know exactly how he would feel or respond to a situation because we spent time together and we learned each other and, and I got to know him, how he thought and, and what he would do. And we need to have the same thing in our lives except with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just with, with earthly disciples and people, but with the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to learn to think and act and even to feel the way that He would feel in situations that He was in. We need to fellowship with Him in His Word and, and learn from Him and learn Him Himself until we, until we act like Him and speak like Him in this world. 
And so if we're Christians, we are disciples. We are learners. That's what it means to be a learner. And Christ himself is our teacher. A disciple is not above his teacher. And then he says, nor a servant above his master. Nor is a servant above his master. A servant is not above his master. And this refers to the slave-master relationship. And this is another way then for us to think about ourselves as Christians. We are disciples of Christ. He is our teacher. But we are also slaves of Christ. He is our master. He is our Lord. And that word there, translated master... In the ESV and and many other translations, that word translated master is the Greek word, and sometimes I'll teach you a Greek word here or there. This is one that I'd like you to know, kurios. It's the word for Lord. It's the word that was used in the Old Testament translation, uh, or, or sorry, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Kurios was was used to translate the the word lord the you know if you see capital l o r d in your bibles that's that's yahweh in the old testament that's what you see in the old testament but in the the greek translation they didn't translate it yahweh they put the word kurios and so when we see this word kurios often it even means yahweh and so the confession of our faith when we say jesus is lord one of the things we're saying is that jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the, the God of the Old Testament. He is one of the, the three persons of God. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying that He is God. But also, that word kurios means, and sometimes lesser context, it just means master. Like the, the owner of a slave would be the kurios, the master of that slave. And so Jesus is not only our Lord and our God, but he is also our master. He owns us. He, he's our boss. He is the one who tells us what to do with our time and our resources and our energy and everything that we think we have. He is the master. We work for him. Our lives are his. Now the ESV translates the other word there, the, um, a servant above his master. That's the Greek word doulos. And doulos means a slave. It was, it was most often used for a slave. Now, you know, you can, you can soften it to a servant or a bond servant, but really that word meant a slave. And if you look at your ESV Bible, if that's what you've got in front of you, there's probably a footnote on that word servant. Mine has footnote number six. And if you look that up, it says bond servant. But the New American Standard Bible and the Legacy Standard Bible and the Christian Standard Bible and the Net Bible all translate doulos as slave. And that's what the word means. And, and the word here in this context, I think, carries the full meaning of that word slave, that Jesus is our master and our owner. Jesus bought us with a price. If we are Christians, Jesus bought and paid for us. He laid down his life for our redemption. 
We were slaves of sin, right? We were, we were unable to pay the debt that we owed. We owed this massive debt for our sin, and our sin had earned us this unpayable debt of God's eternal wrath. And so we were unable to pay, and we were slaves and in bondage to sin, and even an eternity in hell would not have diminished the debt of sin that we owed. And Jesus then paid that debt on our behalf. He died to pay the penalty for our sin and he redeemed us. He purchased us with a payment of his life and of his death. And so Jesus bought us and now we belong to him. We are his. And so 1 Corinthians, and actually maybe maybe we'll turn uh, to a few verses here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians six, verse 19, Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And by saying body there, it's just a way to say with your whole person. Your whole person, you you belong, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, your body is this temple, and, and you then are not your own, you belong to God, you belong to the Holy Spirit, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And then he says almost the same thing again in verse, in chapter 7 and verse 22. 1 Corinthians 7, 22, he says, for, uh, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant, and that's that word doulos again, he who is called as a slave. So if you got saved and you were a slave when you got saved, you are now a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, it says, likewise, he who is free when he was called is a doulos, a bondservant of Christ. And so if you were, if you were free when you were called, if you were saved and you were a free man, well, now that you are saved, and this really applies whether you're slave or free, you are now a, a slave, a servant, a, a bond servant of Christ. And then verse 23 says, you were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Do not become the bond servants of men. So we're not to serve men, but we are slaves of Christ. And that means we need to obey him. Every part of our lives should be obedient to his lordship. Every part of us, that includes our bodies, that includes our minds and our thinking. Our thinking belongs to Christ. It's not like our free space for us to do whatever we want to do in there. It's for, it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our thoughts and especially our secret thoughts, that's his territory. He owns that. Our emotions belong to him and they should be under his control. Our entire beings are, uh, belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the master of us. He paid for us. He bought us. And the, the, the response should be to glorify God with all of who we are in our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our entire beings. Now, the apostles, they, they wore that title slave with pride. 
And so I want to just kind of show you that a little bit. And I want to, I want, let's start in Acts chapter 4. And they just, they, they, recognizing the greatness of Christ, the apostles were just, were so pleased that they could be slaves of Christ. They were, they knew that he bought them and they were just thankful that they could live for him and glorify him with their lives. And so Acts 4.29, the apostles are, are, are being arrested for the first time. This is their, their first imprisonment and now they've been released and so they're together and they're praying. And in verse 29, they say, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I don't know if you caught that word there because the ESV translates it servants again, but in verse 29, grant your slaves is really what they say there. As they're praying to the Lord, they say, we are your slaves. Yes, we're being persecuted. And, and all we ask is that we want to obey you and be obedient to you and continue to, to preach this gospel with boldness. And so help us to be bold and continue the mission. That was their request. And so they, they call themselves the slaves of Christ, the slaves of the Lord. Even the demons recognized that the apostles were slaves. And we can see this in Acts chapter 16. And so go ahead and turn over to Acts 16. And what we see here is we see a, a demon-possessed girl, a slave girl, demon-possessed. She's a fortune teller, and she's bringing her master's um, income through her fortune telling. And when she meets Paul in verse 17, so Acts sixteen seventeen, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants or slaves of the Most High God. They're slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And so the demons even recognized these apostles are slaves of the Most High God. They are his servants. They obey him. He owns them. He be they belong to him. Well, I won't have you turn to the other ones, but just notice here all of the apostles, very many of the letters begin this way. Romans 1, 1 says, Paul, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul sees himself as a slave. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We proclaim Christ as the Kurios. We proclaim Christ as the Master with ourselves as your servants, the Corinthian servants, slaves, again, for Jesus' sake. Paul's message was, I am, I am a slave of Christ and I serve the church because I am, am a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. I do everything that I do for his sake. He is my Lord. He is my master. He owns me. I live for him. Galatians 1 and verse 10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of men 
or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave or a servant of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, Paul has um, instructions to the, the church there, to, to wives and husbands and employees, bond servants, slaves. And to the slaves, he says in, in Ephesians 6, 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants or slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And so in our workplaces, we're to, to serve and obey our earthly masters with fear and trembling, thinking of them as Christ because we are slaves of Christ and our goal as slaves of Christ is to do the will of God from our hearts. Again, Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, servants of Christ. Colossians 4, 12 says, Epiphras, who is one of you, a slave of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. 2 Timothy 2, 24 says, as the Lord's slave, or as the Lord's servant, Sorry, the Lord's servant, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And that really applies for all of us. James 1.1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2.16, Peter tells us to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. And there we see that this is for the whole church. This is for every Christian, not just the apostles. All of us are slaves of God and slaves of Christ. And it's a great privilege to be able to serve such an awesome master. Peter himself, 2 Peter 1.1, identifies himself as a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude in verse 1 says, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to all who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And then Revelation 1.1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, his slaves, the things that must soon take place. And again, that includes all of us. And then John identifies himself in that same verse as a slave, John. It was written to his slave, John. And so the apostles and all Christians are slaves of Christ. He's a good master, which, which makes it then not only our duty to obey him, but also our highest privilege. It's, a, it's an honor to serve such a great master. And in heaven, even in heaven itself, Revelation 22.3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed there, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His slaves will worship Him. And they will see His face, verse 4, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so we will reign with Christ forever, even as His slaves. We will still obey Him in heaven, and again, it'll be our joy to obey him 
and worship him forever there and to reign with him as his servants and as his slaves. Well, let's go back then to our text and we've kind of just seen what the New Testament says about this. This is what we're called to. Again, Jesus says in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. When it comes to being a slave of Christ and a a servant of Christ, the, the question that I think we need to ask ourselves is, what kind of a slave am I? What kind of a, what kind of a slave of Christ are you? A proper slave is an obedient one. A proper slave does what his or her master told them to do. A proper slave refrains from doing what the master said not to do. And they do that even when nobody is looking, right? If, if, if you're a good slave, if you're a good uh, servant of your master, you, you do it whether anyone's looking or not. In the, in the secret places, you still serve the master because you love the master, because you're, you're for the master, because his cause is your cause. And so when no one's looking, when the other slaves aren't around, the a proper slave does what he's been told to do. And we know that our God is all-knowing. He knows everything in our hearts. He knows the secret recesses of what we do. He knows whether our thoughts are obedient, even if everyone else thinks that we're doing fine. You know, Jesus didn't buy us with his blood so that we could do whatever we want to do. He bought us with his blood so that he could turn us into God-glorifying worshipers of him. He purchased the church to be his holy bride. He purchased us that we might glorify God with our bodies, that we might glorify God with our minds and our secret thoughts, with our heart, with our affections, (coughs) with our secret actions. He purchased us that we might worship him every moment of our lives in everything that we would do. That that every aspect of our lives would be an act of worship towards him. I want you to just turn with me then to Romans chapter 12 and and we'll look at verse 1 here. A verse I'm sure you know very well. Romans 12 and verse 1 tells us that our spiritual worship is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. As disciples of our teacher and as slaves of our Lord, our privilege and duty, again, is to become like Him. In Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, and if we kind of go back through Romans there just a little bit briefly, he's appealing to us based on everything that Christ has done for our redemption. This is the mercies of God is is all that God has done to save us and deliver us. And so here's Paul's appeal based on the fact that you are saved. Here's what we should do. If, If God has had mercy on your life, then I urge you, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual 
worship. Our, our worship is to give our lives and our bodies as a living sacrifice to do the will of God. Do not be conformed, he says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're to, to be transformed and, and let our bodies be a, a, a sacrifice to God. That is our worship day by day. And let's go back to Romans 8.28. I want to just quickly look at this text as well. The will of God as we think about it. Romans has just told us that we're to to know and be transformed that we might know the, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that will is that we would be like Christ. And so Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so God has called us according to his purpose. And he has called us and and really caused us to love him. That's what it means to be saved. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, he has foreknown us. And he has predestined us and called us to himself through Christ. And we have been transformed. We were once enemies. Now we are those who love God. And for us, all things work together for good. And that good is defined further in verse 29, where it says that we would be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might have a, a, an impact among many people that, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so we are being conformed into the image of his son that we might impact the world for his son. But really all I want you to see in Romans 8, 28 and 29 is that salvation is meant to make us like Jesus Christ. And that's why Philippians 2, 12 and 13, and actually I'll I'll even have you turn over there for a moment. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, again, a very well-known text. But salvation is meant to make us like Christ. and, And Paul says in this context, he says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not, o- not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul tells the Philippians that, you know, you have salvation. And that's, that's good. You have salvation. And now he wants to see it. He wants to see it worked out. He wants to see that salvation lived and he wants to see it lived whether he's there or not, whether he's present or much more now that he's gone. He says, you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's to be done with fear and trembling because it's God himself, if you're a Christian, who is working in you. God himself is working. If you are truly a believer in Christ, God is working changing you from the inside out. He's transforming our hearts 
changing our desires, conforming our will to His. We are being transformed by His grace and by His power. We once willed and willed and worked in a way that displeased God, but now God is working in us to will and work for His good pleasure. But we are responsible for this. We have a part in this. We are to work out that salvation, which again means fear and trembling because we can't change our wills. God has to change us. God has to transform us. But at the same time, we are responsible to see it happen in our lives. And so you kind of maybe ask, well, how do we see this happen? What are we supposed to do? And what I want you to notice here is that Paul ties this work out your salvation with obedience. Again, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we must obey what God says in his word. We must obey Romans 13, 14, for example, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what we're to do. Obey the Lord and make no provision, no room for the flesh, no room for excuses, no room for justification. We're to obey and be like Christ. And so obey and trust. Obey what the Scriptures say. Obey what Christ-likeness would demand. And trust God to change our desires. Trust God to work in us, to transform our wills, and to that we might work or do for His good pleasure. Again, obey and trust. That's the key to becoming like Christ. And that's the key to glorifying God in our lives. And so again, I ask, what kind of a student are you? What kind of a slave have you been? Are you learning? Are you learning Christ? Are you getting to know him better? Are you, are you starting to anticipate what he would do or what he would say or what he would want in a certain situation? Are you learning him? Are you, are you in his word are you trusting him? Are you, are you asking him to change your desires? Are you fighting against sin in your life and asking him to take away the desire for that sin? Are you being obedient as a slave? Are you trusting him to transform you? Is there fear and trembling? Or honestly, is there arrogance and indifference in your life? And if there is, then it's time to repent and it's time to turn from that. Christ wants us to be true disciples, committed disciples, committed to living for His glory in every area of our lives. And if we are becoming like Christ, and and honestly, just to give some encouragement, I'm not trying to beat you up today. I feel like you have been growing. I feel like many of you have been changing and and being transformed, and that's awesome, and I, I love it. But even, even this week, some things came to light that, that I, I, I know that there's people here that have secret sins in their life that need to repent and turn from them. And so I'm, I'm, I'm coming at you and saying, it's time to be like Christ. It's time to obey. It's time to once and for all bring the hidden sins to light and, and trust God to transform you.
And so if you are becoming like Christ, Jesus says then in our text, and we're going, we're back to Matthew 10 now. He says, it is enough. It is enough for us to be like Him. We're not going to be Christ, but it's enough for us to be like Him. It's enough for us to be ever being transformed into His image. We'll never be above Him. He will always be our Lord and our teacher. But if we're becoming like Him, then Jesus points out that if we're, if we're like Him, kind of two things are going to happen. First of all, we're going to be treated like Him. If we're like Christ, then we're going to be confronting sin in this world like He did, and we're going to face the persecution of the world like He did. The more we're like Him, the more likely we will be treated the way He was. Again, verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master, the slave like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub or Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Beelzebul was regarded as the prince of the demons. In Matthew 9, 32, Jesus cast out a demon-oppressed man who was mute, and, and uh, he cast the demon out of this man, and the man was, was able to now um, speak and hear, I think it was. But in verse 34, the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And that prince of demons again was Beelzebul. Matthew 12, 22, uh, another demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And then Jesus goes on to say uh, and speak about Satan. If Satan casts out Satan, verse 26, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? And so Beelzebul is Satan, the prince of demons. And if they called Jesus the prince of demons, what will they call us? If we are like him, they will, they will malign us as well. We shouldn't expect any better treatment than our master received in this world. In John fifteen eighteen, it says, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on my account or on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So again, if they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will persecute you also. And that's the bad news. But the good news of all of this in in this section is that we can be like Christ. The good news is that we've been chosen out of the world. We've been chosen by God to be like Christ, to be conformed to the image of his son. And we don't have to be then like the world. And that's a promise to us. We don't have to be, brothers, like the world. 
Jesus almost expects us in this passage to be made like him, even all the way to receiving the hostility that he received from the world. That's how much Jesus expects to transform us by his grace. And that's a deep transformation to be all the way to suffering. And because we will be like him, again, then we not, we need not fear persecution. Because if Jesus could endure to the end, then we also can. If we are like him, then we can endure persecution. It will be enough, he says in this context, that we would be like him. So don't fear. Don't worry about the persecution. I would say just with fear and trembling, be conformed to the image of Christ. Remember that he himself has promised to be with us in our mission to the very end. And I want to just go to Matthew 28 again for that. This is kind of the the recommissioning of all disciples. Matthew 10 is for us to kind of learn in greater detail this mission. But the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 and 19 and 20. Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, even like slaves of Christ, teach them that. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus promises that as we go and make disciples of all nations, as we go and and be about his work and his mission and teach people to obey and to be baptized, in other words, to be saved and then to be sanctified, he is with us to the end of the age. We will be persecuted, but we will be empowered as well. Christ will be with us. He will be in us. He even lives within us by the power of the Holy Spirit We've been baptized into Christ and He is in us. And so we need not fear persecution because we are becoming like our teacher and our master who endured persecution as well. And that's the first reason. And that's really, that's only the first reason that Jesus gives us not to fear persecution. There's four more coming. We're going to look at that over the next few weeks. But do not fear persecution because you're becoming like your teacher and master. And that means one of the best ways to prepare ourselves for facing persecution is to just keep on learning, keep on obeying, and keep on trusting Jesus Christ. Keep on growing in your faith and being transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're going to sing now about the the salvation that we have in the Lord. The Lord is my salvation. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we need not fear persecution. And we thank you, Father, that by saving us, you are conforming us to Christ. Father, we recognize that with Christ as our standard, we all fall short in so many ways. Father, we ask that you would transform us. We ask that you would help us obey, that you would discipline us when we disobey, Father, and that you would um, cleanse us and make us the holy people that you want us to be. We ask this, I ask this for myself, and I ask this for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, we pray for any here that aren't saved today, that you would bring them to genuine salvation. 
And we ask that you'd help us now to sing, The Lord is my salvation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.